This may sound strange, but to crime scene investigators, there's something peaceful about working with the dead. No matter how a victim's life ended, they all have a story to tell. That is, if somebody is willing to listen. For more than 30 years, Howie Ryan has been that guy. Most of that time as a state police crime scene investigator. Today, he is a crime scene reconstruction consultant and expert witness and teacher of state-of-the-art forensic techniques to law enforcement agencies worldwide. He has worked scenes you wouldn't want to experience in your worst nightmare. This podcast series will pull back the sheet on what really happens in the world of forensic investigations. It's not like what you see on TV. So hold on tight as we take a walkthrough of some gruesome crime scenes and controversial cases, many of which are too brutal for most people to imagine, and sometimes even for the experts. Join Howard Ryan and his guest experts from around the world for a no-nonsense ringside seat as they take you Under the Yellow Tape. Hey, welcome to Under the Yellow Tape, brought to you today in part by Forensic Training Source. Have you ever wondered about those that do the investigative work to ensure that crime scenes are analyzed, evidence is collected, truth is discovered, and justice is served? Or where the law enforcement professionals that protect and serve all of us find the specialized training required to do their important jobs? Forensic Training Source is the company that provides exactly that kind of training. They exist to serve those that protect and serve all of us. Forensic Training Source deploys internationally recognized experts across the United States to provide top-notch instruction in a variety of forensic disciplines. Let's face it, training budgets for the public servants that keep us safe are tight, especially when travel is required to attend quality training. Forensic Training Source has created a model for course delivery that brings training to the practitioners by mobilizing each course in order to reduce the cost for a community to obtain specialized training for their forensic professionals. Forensic Training Source has become well-known, specifically for 40-hour courses in the fields of crime scene photography, bloodstain pattern analysis, shooting incident reconstruction, and associated advanced courses. They use real scenarios, real blood, real weapons, real ammunition, and most importantly, real experts to create an interactive, dynamic learning experience for its participants. From Alaska to Florida and Maine to Southern California, the staff and instructors of Forensic Training Source have delivered training for thousands of forensic practitioners from all 50 states and numerous countries worldwide. Like myself and everyone here at Under the Yellow Tape, Forensic Training Source has a deep appreciation for those that objectively seek, find, and share truth. And for that reason, I am honored that they chose to sponsor Under the Yellow Tape podcast. For more information, check out Forensic Training Source on their Facebook page or visit them at www.forensictrainingsource.com. Hey everyone, welcome to Under the Yellow Tape. I'm your host, Howie Ryan. Today, um, we're going to talk about an incident in Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. It's an unfortunate incident. It seems like all of the topics lately we've been discussing have been unfortunate incidents. However, they just seem to keep happening over and over. And the behavior of the general public in the aftermath of some of these incidents are thought by some to be even worse maybe than the actual inc incidents themselves. What we're going to talk about today is a gentleman by the name of Walter Wallace. 
Uh, he was a man in Philadelphia who was shot and killed by the Philadelphia Police Department after an incident involving him wielding a knife and approaching the police officers in a threatening manner. This happened on October 26th of this year, 2020. There's so much going on in the media and everything uh, over this and everything else that it's hard to keep up. Here at Under the Yellow Tape, we're, we're, we're putting together other programs here and other episodes that have some different educational uh, topics, but we just keep getting inundated with some of these cases. Today, as I'm recording this, it is, it is the day after Election Day, the morning after Election Day. So we actually don't even know who's been elected yet because they're still counting and there'll probably be some sort of unrest over whatever that outcome may be as well. We don't do politics here, though. This is about an incident in the Cobbs Creek section of Philadelphia. Happened back on October 26, not too long ago. Walter Wallace is a 27-year-old man. He's a black man, African-American. Every news clip that you will see about this makes a point of telling you he's a black man. They don't tell you he's a man. And we'll just leave it at that. It has to be a racial incident, right? Because otherwise the story is not as juicy and not as racially motivated. He apparently is a, a man that was suffering from some mental health issues. Now, the only real accurate or accuracy what we get right now is, is from his family and from some attorney who jumped in on the family side that is probably going to end up suing the city. We'll talk about them as well. What they do say is that he suffers um, from bipolar disorder. And um, I think uh, there was some other description given by one of the family members who are not medical professionals, um, but have been dealing, I guess, with their, their son, Walter, for some time. Now, it's in, there's a couple things in the background here that are important to understand. This is not an isolated incident with Walter Wallace. Philadelphia police were actually called to this residence three times. Or should I say 911 was called three times. Family claims at one point they just asked for the ambulance for their violent son. Well, anybody that's been in law enforcement or any kind of first responder uh, role, you understand that. When you get a call of somebody with a mental health issue that's potentially violent, they don't just send an ambulance or a fire department. They send the police also, just in case. Because if there is a propensity for violence, we, they may have to deal with it. And in this particular case, there was. He had been, uh, I guess, physically abusive to some family members, maybe his father and mother, prior to this. Um, that I guess it is not uncommon. Again, the sad thing about this is he is a mental health case. There is an issue here, a, apparently a, a documented um, case of mental health treatment ongoing. But nevertheless, it's the third time the police are there. Now, what this really revolves around is a video from somebody's cell phone. And you know, it has been played in every media outlet there is over and over and over. And what you see as the video just begins, it appears to be the video, uh, the person taking the video is getting out of a car or something like that, and they immediately focus. And what you see is the back of Mr. Wallace, um, and there's a woman next to him. And it turns out that woman is his mother. And she is trying desperately, it seems, to calm him down and to get him to drop the knife. He seems to walk across a street and onto a sidewalk and turn to left around a parked vehicle. As the man videoing this pans back or turns the camera, what you see is several Philadelphia police officers, too, in fact. Mr. Wallace seems to be walking around a car 
and moving directly towards one of the officers. While the, and he, that officer seems to be on the sidewalk in front of him. The other officer was more out towards the street. As Mr. Wallace moves towards them, and you can see the object in his hand in the video, as he moves towards them, the officers retreat backwards. Now, their weapons are drawn, and they are very clearly giving verbal commands for him to drop the knife. That's important. That'll come back here in a little bit. They move between two parked cars and step into the street. They're moving backwards, never taking their eyesight off of Mr. Wallace. Mr. Wallace is moving with purpose here. It's not like he's just hanging out, screaming or anything like that. He's coming at them. There is nobody with a brain in their head that is even slightly unbiased or objective that can say that's not the case. He is moving at the officers. He is attempting to close the distance between them. As he rounds the corner out into the street, when I say rounds the corner, rounds comes out from behind one of the parked cars. The two police officers are maybe four or five feet apart. They're continuing to give verbal commands to drop the knife and for him to stop. He does not stop. And ultimately, they discharge their weapons. And they kill him. Mr. Wallace goes down right in the street. Now, there has been comments in various media outlets about, well, you know, the first shot incapacitated him. They should have stopped right there. These are comments made by idiots, okay? Um, they, they think they, they've been playing a little too much, I don't know, video games, Call of Duty or something like that. They think they could, you know, they can Monday morning quarterback a shooting. They Monday morning quarterback what's going through anybody's head and, and decide what should have been done. There's probably not a more dangerous way to look at one of these things than being a person who's uneducated in this field. I'm not saying you're a stupid person. I'm just saying you're uneducated in this field. This is not what you do for a living. And start making comments about shoulda, coulda, woulda. What, what, what they should have done. You know, if I was them, I would have done this, right? What you probably would have done is pissed down your leg because you've never experienced something like this. So all those armchair bravado people that are going to tell everybody what to do, just step off for a minute and listen up. Because these incidents, mental health issue aside, can be extremely dangerous and life-threatening for the officers as well. There's a reason why these happen and why sometimes people with mental health issues do get killed by police. It's because they don't stop. And the truth of it is, maybe he's not in his heart a bad person. Maybe it is strictly a 100% mental health issue, but then it doesn't, it doesn't really just kind of make the fact that he has a knife and he's going towards the police go away. There's going to be a reaction to this. Let's talk for a minute about their use of force. And there are some questions. Now, I have heard people say 14 shots or more. There has not been an accurate shot accounting yet. However, on the video, if the audio on the video, which is open source, this is not body cam footage yet, if it is legit, I only hear seven shots. But that, you know, we're getting stuff off the off open media, so you never really know. The, the investigators that are going to uh, go through this shooting scene, they will have the answer to this. They will know how many rounds were discharged by each officer, how many hits, and how many misses there were. That information is yet to be disclosed. I will tell you this. I live in the Northeast. I live in a state near Philadelphia. The agency that I worked for for so many years has worked with Philly PD. They're no joke, folks. Philadelphia Police Department is a busy police department. They know what they're doing. 
they are the real deal. This is not some, you know, kind of hokey backwoods group of people here. They, they're on, they're out in front. This is not, um, if the media hadn't jumped in this and we haven't, and we did not have the climate that we have as far as police use of force issues, this wouldn't be all that big of a news item. Okay. The man came at the police with a knife and they shot him. That unfortunately, uh, is something that, that happens from time to time. So let's talk about their use of force. Let's talk specifically. What I want to do, um, well, you know what? Strike that. I want to go back for a moment. Let's talk about Walter Wallace. We talked a little bit about his mental health uh, documentation as given by his family and only by his family. So um, one of the interesting things about it is, um, you know, if you read just open source media about him, they, they, they always want to tell you somebody's aspiring to be something, which I'm a big believer in. All of us should aspire to be better all the time. But oddly enough, as these cases go on, every one of these people I read about, they were an aspiring rapper. Yeah, Walter, Walter was an aspiring rapper. He's 27 years old, and he's the father of eight, it, it says. And he was employed as an Uber Eats driver. That's what open source tells us off the bat on him. Now, his family members have come out and spoke, and we'll talk a little bit about um, what they have said here in a bit. And it's pretty interesting, actually, very interesting, and a little opposite of what you normally hear from families of, 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 of an incident like this where somebody has uh, engaged the police and use of force has been used. So uh, his family members and the family's attorney, they say he suffers from mental illness, including bipolar disorder, and was taking lithium. Well, obviously, if he's taking lithium, he's under the care of a doctor, right? Um, we, would, we would assume. But what is, his, what is his background? I mean, his background is pretty sketchy. He has a propensity for violence. And I'm, I don't mean like just, you know, arguing. This is a violent man. In 2013, I think, is where it all begins. As far as his, his uh, what we call the CCH, his, his history, um, he pled guilty to pol assaulting a police officer. He was ordered to undergo psychiatric evaluation. So th they knew back then that he might be a psych patient. So in 13, aggravated assault in a domestic with a weapon. Still in 13, aggravated assault with other weapons. This could be all the same instrument. Yeah, it's all domestic disputes. And in, probably in that same incident, there was a resisting arrest charge. In 2014, some more domestic violence. And then um, violation of a protective order, restraining order. Then in 15, I'm sorry, that's 14. 15, he violated it. In 15, he also had an aggravated assault with a handgun charge. More assaults on the Philadelphia Police Department. In 16, he committed a robbery of a residence using a handgun. In 19, he has a vandalism and criminal mischief complaints. Again, in 19, another aggravated assault and a domestic abuse with a knife. Knife. Okay. And in 20, more recently, he's got a terroristic threat complaint against him. So let's just I'll talk a little bit about some of his other background. You know, this is a guy who's got an issue. He's got a, a serious mental health issue. And it's something that has to be taken into consideration. But at the same time, it doesn't give anybody a pass on acting, you know, wildly violent towards anybody plus the police. So it's not his, his, his violence is not really just, it has not been 
just directed at the Philadelphia Police Department. It has been uh, directed at family members as well. And I want you to think about something too, as we go through this. Philadelphia Police Department, police departments anywhere, they have not only a responsibility or an obligation or permission to protect themselves, they have a legal obligation to protect others. So as he's running around this street with a knife, there has to be the thought process of, is he going to hurt anybody else? Is he going to hurt himself? These are all things that are going through their mind as, they're, as they continue on, make their decisions on how this goes. So in 13, like I said, he pled guilty to assaulting a police officer. Um, 17, he re received a sentence of 11 to 23 months after he pleaded guilty to robbery and assault, after kicking the door of a woman and putting a gun to her head. Uh, and in, tw in 20, he was arrested and charged with making terroristic threats against another individual and their family. So somewhere in his, in his psyche, he's okay with the violence thing. Now, one of the things the investigators are going to look at when they, you know, peel the layers of this thing back is how much do these officers know about him? And that's a legit question. Have they dealt with him before? Have these particular officers dealt with him before? Have the officers in that precinct dealt with him before? The answer is yes. My point is, do they know him? Do they know he's violent? I mean, they may already have direct knowledge of his violence against his family members and against them, the police officers. Now you may have an ambulance show. Is he going to be violent to them? So there is a protection component to this that is very important. On October 26th, like we said, three separate times they responded at 6100 block of Locust Street. They came in response. He's outside with the knife. They are they are uh, have their weapons up and they're giving... Um, verbal commands. Once he is shot, he goes down. An important thing to note here is the officers put him in a police car and took him to the hospital. They attempted to render the first aid immediately. That comes back to the use of force, which I'd like to talk about next. So Philadelphia Police Department, like every other law enforcement agency, has policies and procedures. And one of the policies is the use of force. Generally, it is set forth by the state as law and what, what it can be. And for the most part, all of the use of deadly force uh, descriptions from agency to agency are, are fairly similar. Right in the opening of their policy, you know, it's the policy of the Philly PD that the officers hold the highest regard for the sanctity of human life. The application of deadly force is a measure to be employed only in the most extreme circumstances. And all lesser means of force have failed or could have not reasonably been employed. This is a very important line because one of the issues that the family members have is not that the officers didn't use the option of tasing their son. It was that they were not issued tasers. And I'm going to be honest, it's a legitimate complaint. I mean, I think the shooting is completely justified. However, there's going to be an issue of the use of the taser. In other words, why didn't they have it? I'll get into that in a little bit. Continuing their policy, police officers shall not use deadly force against another person unless, now this is the important part, unless they have an objectively reasonable belief that they must protect themselves or another person from death or serious bodily injury. Now, if you take that description and you apply it to what you see on the video of Mr. Wallace coming at them with a knife, pursuing them with a knife, pursuing doesn't have to be a dead sprint, folks. He's moving towards them. He's trying to close that gap. And they believe that the suspect is dangerous. Now, when feasible under the circumstances, police officers will give the suspect a verbal warning or verbal commands. 
In this video, we see multiple verbal commands to drop the knife. Now, police officers using their professional judgment should not discharge their weapon when doing so might unnecessarily endanger innocent people. If you notice, the, the, they tried to gain space between them. They continued to back up and they did not shoot towards the, the mother who was over on the sidewalk. You know, once he broke free from his mother and he made his move towards the police between the cars, he was kind of out in the open there. After using, well, let me go back one. Subjects may be physically or mentally incapable of responding to police commands due to a variety of circumstances, including, but not limited to, alcohol or drugs, mental impairment, medical conditions. Officers should be mindful of this when making use of force decisions. There may be people out there that are going to look at this and say, see, yeah, see, you knew, if you knew he was, had a mental problem, you shouldn't have shot him. No. That's incorrect. That is asking police officers to put themselves into positions to definitely get killed. Mental problem or not, there is going to come a point in some of these incidents where the officer has to make the decision to stop the threat. Stop the threat. Not kill. Stop the threat. Walter Wallace was a threat. Not only to those two officers, but he was a definite threat to the other people there who he had already been violent with. Now, after using deadly force, they shall immediately render the appropriate medical aid and request further medical assistance. They did that. They began, and they transported him to a hospital. Now, when you say objectively reasonable, I want to read this. This is right out of their use of force guidelines under definitions. Objectively reasonable is a Fourth Amendment standard whereby an officer's belief that they must protect themselves or others from death or serious bodily injury is compared and weighed against what a reasonable or rational officer would have believed under similar circumstances. I'm going to come back to that line. Uh, but this determination is made by reviewing all relevant facts and circumstances of each particular case, including but not limited to, one, the severity of the crime at issue, two, whether the suspect poses an immediate threat to the safety of the officers or others, and three, whether the suspect is actively resisting arrest or attempting to evade flight by arrest. Now, Let's go back. It's compared and weighed against what a reasonable or rational officer would have believed under similar circumstances. It's not what you believe sitting in your, your recliner chair. That this, this, this threshold here is what would another reasonable officer have thought? And I can tell you overwhelmingly, they're going to say, you had to stop the threat. This was becoming a very dangerous incident here. And it was happening very quickly. Um... In, in interesting, Philly PD has within their guidelines, the they call it a decision chart. It almost looks like the uh, pyramid of the food group chart from back when we were kids, right? But it says, um, <laughs> this is going to hurt Philly PD. Not the officers. The officers did what they had to do. But the PD's got some problems. And it's not huge problems, but it's something they're going to have to address. So you have on the bottom, no force. Next level up, moderate or limited force, which is physical control, OC spray or whatever. Then you get into what they call less lethal. And you are, you are trying to de-escalate by using verbal commands through this whole thing, which they did. But you get into less lethal. And right on their page, they say electronic control weapon, an ECW, or an ass baton, blah, 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 whatever. That's a taser, folks. Okay, an ECW is a taser. These officers did not, were not issued tasers. Now, here is the issue with that. We do a lot of these cases around the country. I still have a very hard time wrapping my head around the fact that some agencies do not issue this 
less-than-lethal option. Other agencies around the country have had them for years and years. And then you have this school of thought, which, I, I, you know what, maybe, I'm, maybe there's somebody way smarter than me or that's making this decision. They say, we're really only going to give them to supervisors. Okay. All right. You hear that and you kind of just blow it off. Go, oh, okay, yeah, that's good. Yeah, supervisor, yeah. Because they're supervisors, because they're, you know, they became supervisors because they're obviously more squared away, right? Well, that's not only the case, always the case. You know, some civil service agencies, it's like they can take a test on a book based upon a book that may be factually incorrect to, to begin with, but it's the book. So it's, it's our measuring mark. How well can you read? How well can you do a book report? And that's their basis on a promotion. So when you get into a supervisor being the only one with a, a taser, ask this question. So we're going to give the supervisors, the patrol sergeants, maybe, maybe not even all of them, a taser. Are they there? Were they, were they there? No, they weren't there, right? So, so right then and there, that policy sucks because they weren't there. And sometimes these incidents escalate rapidly and they end up in a shooting. So think of this though. So we give the supervisor the less than lethal, but we give everybody the lethal option, right? Everybody's carrying a pistol. Maybe in their patrol cars, they have patrol rifles, whatnot, but you're not giving them a, you're not giving them a taser. That's just stupid, isn't it? I mean, I don't understand it. And people say, well, the taser doesn't always work. I get it. But if you want to play scenario, how about if one of these officers, because there was two there, had that option and maybe fired that taser at Mr. Wallace, if the taser is ineffective or he's moving in such a manner that they cannot get a good contact and it doesn't work in that moment, the other officer then discharges a weapon. But that never happened because they didn't have that option. The officers were not given that chance. So don't blame the officers. They were not given that chance. Right? Um <clears throat> That's, that's their, that's pretty much Philly's use of force issue. The use of force is pretty, you know, it's pretty standard. And these officers actually, you, you went through the continuum. They went up verbal commands, created distance, uh, you know, dropped the knife, dropped the knife. Um, and when he left them pretty much no choice, they, they had to do what they had to do, which was fire. And again, remember when I say that it's not just about them. It's just not about the two police officers, it's about everybody else on that street. If, and even especially if they knew he was a mental health patient, what's he going to do to somebody else on the street? Is he just going to lash out or maybe even hurt himself? Who knows? But it has to be stopped. That threat has to be stopped at that point. Now, as far as the investigation goes, they're going to do a thorough investigation here and they're going to get all these questions answered. And the video is pretty telling. And then there's body cam footage, we have, which we have not yet seen, which will potentially tell more. They will go through that. I, I'm going to say this up front. So there is a commissioner Police Commissioner Danielle Outlaw. I know it's kind of a unique name, right, for a police chief, Outlaw. <laughs> but I found out that she came from Portland, right, which is pretty much a failed city recently um, with everything that went on up there. And you thought, oh, my God, she came out of Portland PD. She's bringing this to Philly. I wanted to see her her um, her news news. Uh, brief that she gave. She gave a, she did a couple of things. She did a Zoom interview with a bunch of people. I got to tell you something. I was actually impressed. She was very good. She answered all the questions. She answered them really well. And she answered them as a chief 
that left me, somebody who's done this as a career, left me thinking she's done this for a living. Not some political appointment jackass that, that a mayor puts in or, you know, pandering people just want to put in to shut everybody up. She actually gave pretty educated answers to a lot of it. Now, I don't know how the Philly rank and file think of her, but in her, in her news uh, interview and in her briefing that she gave, I actually was impressed. She, she was pretty good. You, so you're going to hear the investigative side from her. When you go on the news, you say, well, the investigation, uh, as far as the investigation, we're hearing from family attorney Shaka Johnson. Shaka's not involved in the investigation, folks. So if you hear investigation and you hear Shaka come up, you know, let your ADD kick in and change the channel. Because he's got nothing to do with the investigation. He's looking to sue somebody so he can get his piece of the pie. He's going to also throw in the little hand grenades in the beginning to try to steer as much of this as he can. But he did talk about the mental health crisis order here with the, with, with, with Mr. Um, um, Wallace. And he brings that up right from the beginning. Now the police commissioner, she did, she did mention that the officers were told that this is an ongoing domestic issue and there may be violence there. Again, it's the third trip of the day there. They were wearing body cam. So we'll, we'll see what they say later. Now, when you get back to the, the family lawyer, he comes out and he acknowledges that Mr. Wallace had the knife. And he was suffering from an obvious mental health crisis. He also said the footage showed one officer saying, shoot him to the other officer. I, I didn't hear that, but we'll, we'll see. Maybe, that may be on the body cams. Maybe they got a chance to see that already. And he's immediately already talking about a wrongful death lawsuit. So you see what his motive here is? His, his motive isn't saying um, my client, you know, acted appropriately or my, my client's son was, was, didn't deserve to get any police action or anything like that. He's going for a civil settlement. So immediately when they bring that up, I, I question their motive. Like, do you, are you really genuinely concerned about this family? Or are you just looking for a payday? Now, the family has come out and say that we don't want the officers charged with murders. We just want some, some things changed. And one of the things they're talking about is the taser, issuing of the taser. And um, maybe it's not a, you know, it's, it's probably one of the more, more um, intelligent things I've heard from one of these family members that have been involved in one of these incidents. I give the, I give him Walter Wallace Sr. Um, you know, he came right out and he says, why didn't they use a taser instead? It's a legit question. Well, the answer is they didn't have them. And Philly PD and the mayor and a few other people who I'm going to talk about in a little bit, like, uh, what is this guy's name here? Kenyatta, Kenyatta Johnson. He's a councilman. He's on the board. He's out here. He's out here kind of shit talking the police right from their jump street. Here's the thing, Mr. Johnson, you're on that board. You're going to get asked why they don't have tasers, and you better have an answer. Don't think you're going to be just on the other side of this screaming at the police. You're responsible. You got skin in this game. And I'm going to bring you up here in a minute, and we're going to talk about you. The other one is Jim Kennedy, or Kenny. Jim Kenny. He's the mayor. He's another one. He goes, difficult questions have to be answered about this incident. Really? What? I mean, the video tells you the whole thing, Mr. Kenny. You're pandering. You're a coward. Okay? The question is, why didn't you equip your people? So you're right. Some serious, difficult questions have to be answered by you and Mr. Johnson, not, not anybody else. So they said in their, when they bring up the issue of the taser, the department only had around 2,300 tasers at the time of the shooting. They, we plan to increase them to 4,500, okay? Philly's one of the largest PDs in the country, folks. I get it. There's an expense. But what are you going to pay out in a civil settlement now? This one check you're going to write will cover all the tasers and then some. Now, this taser issue is not going to go away. They're going to keep it alive. And uh, 
it's going to be a legit part of their civil lawsuit. So um, the other um, thing they want to talk about is we're going to create a behavioral health unit that can respond. Yeah, that's going to do you really a lot of good. That's good. Yeah, good. The guy charging you with a knife. What are you going to do? You're going to say, sir, we need to talk. I just need you to stop. I'm a behavioral, what is it? I'm a behavioral health unit person. I'm here to help. There are times when that might help. This is not one of them. He's charging with a knife. He has a bad intention. Get the hell out of the way because you know what's about to happen. And it's, it's a sad state of affairs. Now, let's talk for a minute about why he did this. Mental health, mental health, mental health. I want to talk to you about a phenomenon. And I'm not saying, and I'm going to bring this up as a point of something to consider, but I don't necessarily think that Mr. Wallace had this in mind. But there is a phenomenon called suicide by cop. This guy's 27 years old. Mental health issues are there. He's got eight kids and a job. So there are times when he can function here. Is he, what does he really think is going to happen? Is he in a position at that time or is he having an episode where he's not thinking clearly at that time? That's not for me to decide. That's more mental health professionals that can look at this later. But as he's coming at the police with a knife, does he think they're not going to do anything? I mean, he's lasted 27 years on this earth. He's made some decisions. Does anybody really think that if you charge the police with a knife, it's going to end with you being victorious? So my question is, does he have another thought process? Suicide by cop is real. There's two, and it usually comes in, you know, kind of two forms. The first is somebody's committed a crime and they're being pursued and decide they'd rather die than go to jail, you know? I mean, they're going to do themselves before, before the police get a hold of them. They may not really be suicidal people otherwise, but they simply decide, you know what? I'm not going to prison. I'm not going to do this and deal with everything in prison. I'm just going to take myself out. The second version is more aligned what, what, you know, you, you look at this and say, does this fall into this? Involves people who are already contemplating suicide and who decide that provoking a law enforcement or killing them is the best way to act on their desires, right? They may commit a crime um, or they may get to a point where they just provoke the police to do it. Do it for them. Kill them. It has happened. Uh, and it's, it's, if that's the case, and I'm not saying it's the case, but if that is the case, how sad is that? That a mental health issue is that has gotten that bad where you say, you know what, I'm going to make you do it. I'll tell you, though, one of the things we've not heard from anybody is any questions about how are the officers doing? They just killed a man. You think they're out having beers, clinking glasses, saying, yeah, that was awesome. No. And for the civilians out there that listen to this, that think that police enjoy that, they think that they want to pull a trigger on another human being, Man, they don't want to do that. I can tell you, I've investigated so many police shootings. That is not something that they want to do. And in this particular case, you could see by how they were moving, how they thought the situation was. They were, it was a, there was, there was a tense moment right before this. They were retreating. They were screaming verbal commands and then they fired. And then they gave him first aid. So it's not like they just, you know, were, uh, had a laissez-faire, I don't care attitude about him. They tried, it seems to me like they tried to do the right thing. So um, when we get back into some of the aftermath of this, we're going to talk about what happened in Philadelphia since that time.
But there is another thing that I think bears discussion in this case. And it involves something that has gone on or gone back a ways. And you'll hear it discussed from time to time. They call it the 21-foot rule. Okay. What they, what they talk about with that is it's something that is discussed that uh, deals predominantly with edged weapons and, and in law enforcement encounters with people with edged weapons. The idea behind it is they think that people can close the distance. Well, well, they don't think they can. They've proven it. People can close the distance with an edged weapon very rapidly. And by doing so, they can get to the officer and stab them, cut them, maybe kill them. So a lot of force, law enforcement agencies train with the idea like they have to make this, this 21-foot uh, idea uh, known to them. In other words, listen, you're the one that's going to be making those split-second decisions in a life-or-death encounter in a use-of-force incident. Understand that distance and space is your friend. You want to keep them away from you. But if they decide to charge you, close the gap, move in slowly, quickly, whatever it might be, there's going to come a point where you have to understand that you're not going to be able to stop them before they get to you. Now, this is what I mean by that. And this is something that a lot of folks don't understand. They watch a lot of shit in TV and the movies in Hollywood, right? You see somebody get hit with a gunfire in a movie and they get lifted off their feet and blown backwards. Well, here's something to consider. The force of the bullet coming out of the gun is proportional to the recoil of the gun in the hand of the shooter. So theoretically, if I'm firing a handheld weapon at you and it hits you with enough force with just a solid projectile, then it's going to lift you off your feet and blow you backwards. It's going to blow me backwards, the shooter as well. Okay? Because there's an explosion and they're going two different ways. There's going to be an equal kind of force applied to the shooter. So my point is, all of that silly, nonsensical bullshit you see on TV that looks cool as hell, you know, is really not the case. Generally, when they get shot, they fall straight down. Or they fall in the direction that they may be moving. Or they fall in the direction they might be moving after they're shot. And that's the important one you got to remember, after they're shot. They don't always stop especially pistol cartridges. I don't care whether you're talking about 9mm, 40, 45, 357 auto, it doesn't matter. They're, they are pistol cartridges. And they're going to go into the person if they hit them in soft tissue. They're going to cause damage. They're going to have a kinetic energy release. And they will result in stopping power. But don't believe for a minute they're going to go flying backwards. Now, I explain that because it's important to understand that when you talk about somebody coming at you with an edged weapon. If they are moving in your direction and you hit them square in the chest with a, with a pistol cartridge, they may still come at you. And there are examples of that. And they, and they call this a 21-foot rule. It's really not a rule. It's a shooting drill is what it is. There's an organization that I, I would like to mention because I, I, I actually think they're pretty fantastic. It's called the Force Science Research Institute out of Minnesota. And one of its founders is Dr. Bill Lewinsky. And he, I have had the pleasure of having a conversation with him. I picked him up at the airport one time when he was here speaking at one of our events. And I had a good chat with him in the car. And then I watched him do his presentation. He's a, an incredibly dynamic speaker. He has done a tremendous amount of research um, on this 
topic that really nobody has done before. And he talks about a lot of different things in shoot, don't shoot scenarios and um, use of force. And um, it's, it's pretty interesting. And one, one of the things they say about this 21-foot uh, thing is, when accurately stated, it, in the time it takes the average officer to recognize a threat, draw the sidearm from a holster, and fire two rounds at the center mass of an individual who's charging them, an average subject can cover a distance of 21 feet in that time. That's where it comes from. Thus, when dealing with an edge weapon wheeler, anything less than 21 feet, you better be ready. They're not saying to shoot people. They're not, nobody ever says that in this, in this shooting drill. It just says you better be ready because if they decide to come at you, you're probably not going to have time. They're going to get to you. You will be up close. There's a couple other things that he talks about. Sometimes weapons that officers often think that they can depend on to defeat knife attacks can't really be relied upon to protect them in all those cases. Those pistols aren't strong enough. They'll kill somebody, but they're not going to stop them right away. People get hit by bullets and run away sometimes. And they may die later. They may get to a hospital, but they don't always die. So all that Hollywood nonsense, you got to shake it kind of, you know, clear it from your head because it's really not, it's really not always going to be the case. The other thing he talks about in that one article is, is the over-reliance sometimes on tasers. You know, that's why they don't always work, folks. You might hit them. You're all depending on a good connection. And in, in that connection, you're hoping you get this connection and you close the electrical circuit and you can deliver a neuromuscular failure and stop the threat. But they don't always work. So if they don't work, you better be ready to go to door number two, which may be the pistol or whatever it is you have. Um, he goes on and talks about this, um, the 21-foot drill. I'm going to read some of right from his, his writings. It says, anyone taking an unbiased look at the police profession knows that American police resolve the overwhelming majority of deadly force encounters without firing a shot. Even now, many of you are remembering, he's talking to people on the job, even now many of you remember times you could have lawfully used force, even deadly force, but instead generated voluntary compliance. Now, that's if you have a dialogue. The dialogue with Mr. Wallace wasn't really happening. It's not like they didn't try it. Giving him, giving him some commands, but he wasn't really responding to that. So there is, um, there's cases in, in the history, Buchanan versus uh, San Jose. I'm going to read again from it. Officers responded to an emergency call that a man was threatening a family with a knife. Sadly, it turned out that the man had actually called the police on himself with the intent of committing suicide by cop. When the officers arrived, they saw a man armed with a knife who then advanced towards them in a threatening manner. Sound familiar? Starting from, this is, listen to this, starting from a distance over 130 feet away. Now, this is in the reconstruction. The man first walked towards the officers and then accelerated into a trot, which was described as a fast and rapid pace. Still armed with a knife, the man ignored repeated commands to stop. When the athletic suspect reached approximately 55 feet from the officers, they opened fire. Now, here's the part you got to listen to. The suspect then traveled another 37 feet towards the officers after being shot before falling. This is pretty telling. And this is why they, they go over this in the training scenarios. It was an appeal, went back and forth. Um, qualified immunity came into play. Qualified immunity, what that is, is a rule protects officers from civil liability for official conduct. Conduct, not misconduct. And to protect officers who must make multiple judgment calls each day, the law makes it hard to win a lawsuit against the police in that. So in the end, the court will uphold qualified immunity by deciding that it would not have been obvious to a reasonable officer 
that the suspect's constitutional rights were violated. And they, in, in that particular case, they justified their use of deadly force. There was another one in Florida, Florida versus Michael Draca, involved an incident over a handicapped parking spot. They, they talked about uh, the average person can sprint 21 feet in roughly 1.5 seconds. And they talk about having that time, reaction time. One of the things they really do is they, they do a, um, a simple reaction distance principle. And it requires a consideration of such factors as pre-attack indicators. Now, as I mentioned these, I want you to listen and think of this case in Philly. Such factors as pre-attack indicators, emotional arousal indicators, attention and perception influences, speed of the assault, firearms accuracy, action and reaction times, start and stop times, sprint speeds, the effect of uniform weight on performance and decision-making processes. Not to mention the effect of heightened emotional and physical stress on all of these factors. So it's not just, uh, well, you know, they shot him because he had a knife. No, no, no. I'm not saying that, you know, these guys were going down a checklist, like, you know, they're, they're, they're calling, they're going there, they're their check downs, like a quarterback saying, well, emotional stress and blah, 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 blah. But they are in a way. They're looking at it saying, he's not stopping. He's coming at us. He has the knife. He's acting in a threatening manner. He's, he's refusing our verbal commands. It's getting to a point here where we're going to have to do something. And they did. And, you know, it's kind of one of those things that it's easy to Monday morning quarterback. Now, I got to bring this up. I know it's the day after the election, I said in the beginning, but I'm going to talk about something that happened before the election. It's not necessarily political, but, but this plays into this, this, some of this crazy stuff that goes on. So one of the, one of the candidates, uh, Joe Biden, and <laughs> for all I know right now, he could have been elected. He made this idiotic comment about, you know, we got to learn to just shoot him in the knee. Joe, or anybody who would say that, what are you doing? That's the dumbest thing anybody that has ever shot a gun has probably ever heard. And I say anybody who's ever shot a gun. Because if none of you have ever shot a gun or been on a range where you're trying to hit a target over a period of time or have ever gone hunting and tried to hit a moving target, you would understand how ridiculous that statement kind of really is. Now, let's, let's not make fun of him because maybe he doesn't know. But it is a, kind of a dumb statement in your political position. Because people are listening to you. You're also the same guy that told us a few years ago to take a shotgun out on your back deck and start discharging around the air and scare everybody. But his, his gun comments are kind of nutty. So here's the deal. I'm just going to say it. It is extremely hard to hit somebody in the knee that's moving. Okay? As it is, hit rates in police shootings are remarkably low. A lot of that has to do with stress. It's not necessarily a lack of marksmanship or ability to shoot. A lot of it is a panic situation, a reaction to another violence, act of violence, and moving targets. It's, it's extremely difficult. If you've never done it, I would, I would urge you to go out and shoot some uh, trap or skeet, you know, shoot some clays. Try to hit moving targets to see how easy it is. Um, and by the way, when you do all that, remember, nobody's shooting back. See, when you have the shooting back or somebody trying to stab you, it adds a whole other dimension to this thing. So when you hear statements like that, if you're listening to this, please understand that it, it's not something that's easily done. It's actually almost impossible to do. If you were to hit somebody moving in the kneecap, it'd probably be straight out of luck, okay? It wouldn't be anything that, you, you know, you could say, wow, my skill set is really awesome, um, especially with open sight pistols and things like that. All right. Now, 
Let's talk about what happened in the city of Philly right afterwards, because it's the same kind of shit that happens in all these other cities right after something like this happens. Protests and demonstrations. If you read some of the mm, open source, they talk about against police brutality. So they're calling, immediately they're bringing your attention to these two officers' actions against Mr. Wallace as police brutality. To do that, you have to almost immediately eliminate the fact that Mr. Wallace was coming at them with a knife. And that Mr. Wallace has a long history of violence against both police and women and his family. Well, you can't. You can't really eliminate all that because it's real. It's true. Okay. Then they also bring up institutional racism. You know, you try to avoid this because it's, it's just such a powder keg. But sometimes it's hard to avoid it. Every time an African-American person in this country seems to get shot by police, somebody is just immediately going to call it institutional racism. And they, they're not bringing up maybe what the person did to first draw the police presence or the police attention or what they did to actually draw maybe the gunfire from police. It's just racism. It's just another black man that was killed. Well, you know, in this particular case, it's very ignorant to say that. Because the actions of Mr. Wallace are very plain to see. And the last thing you might be talking about is his color of his skin. It's a man. It's just a man, a 27-year-old man with a mental health issue that decided to do something very violent. And that's what did it. You know? Someday, there, everybody, I love when people always say, we, ha we have to have an on honest conversation about this. And we will, at one point on this, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna throw some statistics out to you on shootings in neighborhoods and shootings in areas of the country and actual hard number statistics of people killed by certain people. And we'll go through that. And it might surprise some of you. And actually, I guarantee it will surprise some of you. But in the incidents after this, Philadelphia kind of blew up. There were some peaceful demonstrations. And I've said it before on previous episodes. You know, we want that. That's, if you're upset about something, you have a right to do that. It's great. But as of October 31st, there had been a total of 225 arrests, 60 injured police officers, 617 incidents of looting, 18 damaged vehicle. And this is the one I, I, I get. 24 ATM explosions. What the hell is that? October 26th, the night it happened, right? Police arrested 91 people. The night it happened, we're looting, looting. Because nothing says social justice like a new flat screen, right? like a 61-inch Samsung or an 80-inch Samsung, that makes everything better. Looting. This is the night it happened, folks. They responded to the house at 4. By that night, they're looting and burning things. You don't even know what happened yet. The police are still trying to figure it out. According to the Philly PD, 30 police officers were injured almost right away. One 56-year-old female police officer broke her leg after being run over by a car. Hmm. The 27th, the next day, they asked the Pennsylvania National Guard to come in. As I go through this, I want you to be like uh, the meter in a taxi, all right, as the dollars add up, as the money just increases. So they have to mobilize the National Guard, several hundred soldiers maybe. Businesses began getting looted right before 9 p.m. in North Philly, which alleged, with allegedly 1,000 people looting businesses in an area called Port Richmond. Now, the Party for Socialism and liberation held a march from Malcolm X Park in West Philly through the UPenn campus to Clark Park. About a thousand people. 
They marched and called for community control of the police and the defunding of the Philadelphia Police Department and the arrest of the officers involved. So those three things, the defunding, community control, and arrest of the police officers, tells me you have no idea what you're talking about. You don't even know what happened yet. You know a black guy got killed, right? You have no idea why, though. And actually, you really don't care because this is your mission, okay? Included in that were six justices organizations, including the Penn Community for Justice and the city's Black Lives Matter chapter. A slow-moving uh, USO SUV being surrounded by police. Police had to take action on that. October 28th, the next day, citywide curfew has to be put in place. No major protests. 40 people were arrested, including assault on police, burglary, failure to curfew, and theft of vehicles. The 30th, Wolf sends the National Guard to Philly, stationed them outside City Hall. And two men were charged with felony possession of weapons of mass destruction after being found with illegal explosives, bolt cutters, and machetes. They were going to attempt to blow up ATMs. So there we go in the ATMs again, right? I think there's another ATM issue here somewhere. So tell me something. What exactly does blowing up an ATM have to do with social justice? What's in an ATM? Money? So you just want money. You really don't give a shit about Mr. Wallace. I'm just going to blow up an ATM now. You, you see what I'm getting at? From city to city, whenever anything happens that they can make an issue out of, people from outside the city come in and take advantage of these moments. And there actually are people that want to peacefully protest and have a voice heard. But in truth, it's being drowned. It's being drowned out by these other people doing all this other stuff. So all of you folks that really think you're going to go out there and do this peaceful stuff, it's probably not going to happen. Because you're going to be one-upped by some lunatic that wants to blow up an ATM or something like that. As we do normally on one of these, let's talk about some other reaction. Kenyatta Johnson, I told you I'd bring him back up. He is a Philadelphia City Council member in the 2nd District. And on the 28th, shortly after, uh, he issued a statement. Now, it's, it's important to understand he is the chairman of the city's council on special committee on gun violence prevention and the vice chairman of the council's public safety committee, which oversees the city's public safety agencies, including Philly PD. So he's, he has some oversight, which is going to come back and haunt him. So the quote, the Philly P Philadelphia police shooting and killing of Walter Wallace Jr. of West Philadelphia on Monday, October 26th was totally unfortunate and an unacceptable situation. Uh, I would give him the floor. What's unacceptable? Was it Mr. Wallace's behavior that prompted the police gunfire? Or do you not, is that like the guy in Wizard of Oz? Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Let's just focus on the police shooting. You know, you're killing me. He says, my heart goes out to the entire family, which is true. It should. Um, who is seen in interviews trying to de-escalate the incidents. The role of any police officer should be to first try as much as possible to de-escalate any situation so no one gets hurt or killed. Yeah, yeah, they did, but they, they were trying to create space and give verbal commands for him to drop the knife. So I, I'm not sure what you're talking about there. He goes on to say, I have faith that Philadelphia Police Commissioner Daniel Outlaw, District Attorney Larry Krasner, and Philadelphia Mayor Jim Kenney are committed to conducting a thorough and transparent investigation. Okay, so here's the thing. Yes, Daniel Outlaw, and to an extent, the Attorney General are going to be involved in the investigation. The mayor is not. He has no role in an investigation. But you're going to want them in there, I guess. So it'll be up to the commissioner and the DA to determine any disciplinary actions. Or not. Like maybe they actually acted in according to the use of force guidelines or possible criminal heart charges. 
all Philadelphians in the nation are watching this investigation. It's like to, it's like to say, don't cut the corner, we're watching. He says, I understand the anger and rage that happened in West Philadelphia this week has been a rage that has been felt around the nation in communities of color for decades. And that here is yet another police-involved shooting that has claimed the life of a man or woman. But you don't explain the actions of the people that actually died. Nobody ever wants to bring that up. Now, this is the guy who's the city councilman. He goes on to talk about the issue of police reform, institutional and systematic racism and poverty. You know what he never does? He never talks about the people under his charge. He never talks about the two officers that were forced to use deadly force. He never asks how they are, never offers a prayer for them or their family. He's just saying, we're watching. In other words, I don't trust you. We're going to get to the bottom of this. Mr. Johnson, you actually suck, okay, as a, as a council member. Because you're looking at this through the eyes of racism. I just said it. How about that? You, sir, are not unbiased. And you just aired it out for the world to see. You should be looking and saying, there is a criminal investigation. We'll wait till the end of it to see what happens. I pray for the Wallace family and that they can find peace. It's an unfortunate event. And I pray for the officers and their families. But you didn't, did you? Because you got a mission. CNN the world's leader in ridiculousness. Shaka Johnson, he was the lawyer for the Wallace family, said that the family had made at least three calls to the authorities that day. So he's telling us they've been there three times. CNN went on another one. Two Philadelphia police officers shot and killed a 27-year-old black man. That's the news. He's a man, folks. He's a man. If this was some kind of racial hanging, like back many, many years ago, decades ago, I, I get the black thing, but you're, you, CNN, you are, you are forcing the racial issue here. This is a mental health issue. Police officers shot and killed a 27-year-old man with mental health issues. Should have been your headline. You suck too. And it says, in their, in their next line, it said, the police shooting of Walter Bobo captured on cell phone video is just the latest instance of police officers using violence against black people. Oh my God. <laughs> You didn't even bring up his mental health issue, just his color. Who's the racist here, CNN? Johnson said that Wallace was suffering and in the doctor's care. He was receiving treatment in his mental health issues. This is, this is very important. Also goes to why his behavior was so erratic. But like I said earlier, it does not give a pass on the act of violence. It may give an explanation to it. You, you can't just give a pass. One of the things CNN did bring up, which is what we brought up earlier, they were not carrying tasers. This is an answer... The, the answers had to have to be given by the people I've, I'm, I'm criticizing here. And I don't mean the commissioner. I actually have not criticized her yet. I haven't seen anything to criticize her about. But I don't know her, and I don't know that much about her. But Kenyatta Johnson, you better put your money where your mouth is, or, or you should find another job. Because the police use deadly force in the manner in which they did is because you, sir, you, Kenyatta Johnson, city council member, one in charge of the budget, failed in your duty. As a matter of fact, it's almost like, what's that term? It's almost like not a, a non-feasance of duty. You're an elected official. You're supposed to do this. Why are, you, why are you not providing them with what they need or the financial backing to give them what they need tactically to resolve things potentially in a less than lethal manner, but then you're going to turn around and you're going to criticize them when they have to use deadly force 
because you failed to provide them the less than lethal option. You know, body camera footage has not been released. Mayor Jim Kenney acknowledged that the cell phone raises questions about the officer's actions. What? I didn't see any. I don't know what Kenny knows about investigating police shootings. I don't know what his background is, but I guarantee it's not here. He hasn't done this for a living. Uh, and, and it's typical, the union is, is, um, is standing up for, you know, the officers. And they're, and they're going through they're going through their actions and they're going to stand by them. And this is a, 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 a again, folks, I, I do this quite a bit. It's a pretty justified shooting. They, 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 there's a point where we're going to have to acknowledge and accept the fact that the police officers can't let Mr. Wallace get any closer to them with that knife. He becomes a threat to their lives. He is a threat to their lives already, but he becomes a really big threat to their lives if they allow him to close that distance. I want to talk real quick about Mr. Wallace Sr. I'm pretty sure he'll probably never hear this podcast. But if he did, I would say to him, I'm sorry for your loss, first of all. It's very unfortunate your son had a mental health crisis and it got to this point. But I want to give you some credit for standing up immediately and saying, talking, addressing the people of Philadelphia about the looting and the violence. His quote is, all this violence and looting, I don't want to leave a bad scar on my own son and my family with this looting and chaos stuff, he told CNN. So I want my son's name and everybody to stop. In, in my son's name, to stop this. Give my son a chance. Everybody to have respect for our family, to pray for us, cut it out. The looting is a mindset, and it won't bring my son back, and it won't. Uh, it'll escalate things to get worse instead of better. He's right. This is a man who, when the microphone was put in front of his face, it was done so after he lost his son. And even in that moment, that difficult moment, Mr. Wallace Sr. was able to put together a legitimate statement in, in the face and in the, in the, of the heartbreak that he was dealing with. And he made a lot of sense. And a lot of people could learn from just that moment what he said. I don't know what the rest of his life is like, but in that moment, he made a good point. He says, I don't want these officers charged with murder. You know why he said that? Because he understands the threat that his son was to them at that moment. His only legitimate complaint here, or his only complaint, and it's a legitimate one, I should say, is why didn't they have a taser? And that question is going to have to be answered by somebody. I'm not going to get into celebrities because I'm actually quite sick and tired of giving those people time, the time of day. Um, besides, they're, they're grabbing enough attention with the election right now. But as you go through this, and, and uh, you know, with the election happening now, uh, this will take a back seat for a little bit, but it'll, it'll rear its ugly head again. Think about the actions of Mr. Wallace that are clear on video what his intentions are, and what a reasonable person, a reasonable officer would believe. Objectively reasonable is the threshold we have to meet here. Make up your own mind. Don't just turn on the TV and watch everybody burning Philadelphia and wondering why, okay? Don't think of a black man, folks. Think of a man with a mental health issue. In a previous episode, we had Kristen Kobo on. And we talked about mental health issues. And she's going to be back. We're going to talk about it some more. We'll bring this case up as well with her. Not a black man. A man with mental health issues. They come, there's no race that has this market cornered. White people, black people, you name it. Male, female, children, adults. The mental health issue in this country is a crisis that we cannot continue to ignore. It's huge. And it has to be addressed. And we have to make an investment in it, all of us, across the board, regardless of your race or your gender or your political party. It's real. 
it exists, and it doesn't recognize any of those things I just listed. So take your time. If you get time, check this case out. Look at, look at the videos. When they release the, the body cams, check them out as well. Like I always say here on Under the Yellow Tape, we're not here to change your mind. Just open it. It is my, my opinion this was a justified shooting. It's very unfortunate. It's tragic. Because we say it's justified, it doesn't make it any less tragic. You just have to look at the totality of the circumstances, and you have to make an objective decision here. Those officers were put in a very difficult position, and they made a decision. So as much as our prayers are maybe with the Wallace family, that they can get through their pain, I can tell you our prayers are with those police officers' families. All right, they had to make a tough decision. They're going to live with the barometric pressure, as I previously explained in earlier episodes, that comes with doing that. So make up your own mind. Check it out. And uh, by all means, leave us uh, any comments or questions at, uh, you can go to undertheyellowtape.com or undertheyellowtapepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. We'll talk soon.